Amen. I do want to take a minute and just say welcome, Stephen Carroll. It's great to have you with us. Those of you who are newer Winterberry, we sent them out 33 years ago. It's hard to believe that much time's gone by. And it's always a pleasure to have them in our presence. So great to have you here. All right, let's get going. Well, actually, Janie's passing away isn't the only... Uh, period of mourning I've experienced this week because I've been kind of sad all week long and that is because I also got news this week that one of my classmates from high school passed away. Her name was Sherry Gagnon Warren and um, she was a physical trainer. Her husband was a master physical trainer. She had just recently run a half marathon. She was in incredible shape and it was a blood clot to the brain, sudden totally unexpected. She has several children, grandchildren, and the whole thing is a shock. And I, all week long, I've been going kind of in and out of, of grief, um, thinking about Sherry. I get it right now. Um, I think part of it is just thinking about mortality. It's just, you know, last time I saw Sherry, she was an 18-year-old track star. And, I, and then I read her obituary, and she's a 55-year-old grandmother. And, and it seems like that right? This life is so transient. But I've been thinking about Sherry. She was a friend. We had actually almost, she was in almost all my classes during all of high school. Um, We both ran track, so we knew each other through track. Um, But it's been really kind of interesting, kind of reminiscing about Sherry. That's her picture from the 82 yearbook, the classic 80s hair. And then this is one just last year of her. And as you can tell, Sherry was probably the most popular girl in our, of our class of 900 students. We had a giant high school, 900 kids in my class, 3,500 in the, in the high school. And she was probably the most popular girl in the school. She was state champion in two of the sprints, got a full track scholarship to Syracuse. Um, she was, you know, she was in a straight A student, honor student, you know, very attractive. All the guys wanted to go out with her. You know, never, no one thought, you know, she's way over our league. And, and I can still remember now, I still, even though it's 40 years ago, I can still remember being intimidated in her presence. Just between her beauty, her talent, and just, you know, she's just in a whole other stratosphere of importance, at least on the high school world. And I just remember, I'm this nerdy little guy over here, and I just remember feeling so intimidated. But what was so cool is when I was reading, we have a Facebook page for our high school class, and a lot of people were putting in remembrances of Sherry, and it was amazing. Nobody talked to each other, but they were almost all the same. And what they were was, no matter who you were, she made you feel like you were the most important person in that, in that room. And she didn't, I mean, in high, that's rare for an adult, let alone a high school kid, Right? But even then in high school, and I remember she used to call me my little Frenchman. And, um, you know, and you make me laugh, you know. But she never was like, I'm better than everybody. She was always very much wanting to make you feel special. And that that just stood out. You know, and and as I remember that, I was just thinking, I don't know where she was faith-wise or any of that. I wasn't thinking along those lines back then. But all I know is this, at some point, somewhere along the line, she got the message that is so crucial 
if we're going to lead lives of significance. And that is, it's not about me. Right? It's not about me. She figured that out at a very young age. And even her obituary was obvious that her husband, her children, and her grandchildren, and the people in her life figured out that she knew that as well. It just spoke from her life. It's not about me. You know, it kind of ties into what Leroy was going this morning. When we're focusing on our own junk and our own self, it's all, then we make it about us. It's not about me, good or bad. That's where we're going this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're in a sermon series called Jesus More Than Enough. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're halfway through now. We're in chapter 9 out of 16 chapters. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, obviously, it's not about me. And I don't mean Andre, I mean you, right? You get that, right? It's not about you, not about me, right? It's not about us personally, not about me. And as I said, that is crucial. If you're going to lead a life of significance, that's absolutely crucial. If you're going to serve Christ, it's essential. But it's so, even though it's so simple, and we all know this intellectually, it's not about me, I know that. Very few of us live this way. Very few. And when they do, it stands out like a sherry. Because it's so rare when you meet someone that's not caught up in themselves, in some way, good or bad. It's, it's, a, it's a simple lesson, but boy, is it easy to forget. And we're not the only ones who forget it. The disciples do too, as we're going to see. So we're in Mark chapter 9. Now, it's been a couple weeks because of vacation and stuff since we've been in Mark. Let me give you a little bit of the where we've been just before we read, starting in verse 30. And that is, if you recall, Jesus said a few weeks back, we talked about how he had gone up to a high mountain. And he, on that mountain, probably in Caesarea Philippi, here's the Sea of Galilee down here. This is Galilee. Israel's actually here. Half of Israel's cut off in this picture, sorry. This is Galilee, northern Israel. And then up here, beyond Israel, you have this area called Caesarea Philippi, a city. And way up here is Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in the region. And the water flows down from here and fills in the Jordan River and down the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea. So Mount Hermon's important. And I had suggested that very likely when Jesus is transfigured, when he's shown in his heavenly glory who he really is, it probably happened up here at Mount Hermon. So he's north of Galilee when it happens. And you might remember that scene. He brought up three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to see him in all of his heavenly glory. It's an amazing moment. And then when they're done with that, they come down the moment, the mountain. And if you recall, when they get down to the base of the mountain, they find that the other nine disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law. And I don't know if you remember what they're arguing about. There was a little boy who was, who was demonized. And the disciples weren't able to heal him. And so then they go back and forth arguing on that. And then Jesus comes down, heals the boy, settles the argument, tells them this kind can only come out through prayer. And that's where we left off. Off of these two incidences, this incredible experience on the mountain and then this experience down in the plain. And off of that, we enter into our passage this morning. Verse 30. Then they left that place, and they passed through Galilee. So go ahead and keep the map up a little bit. Normally, I wouldn't have you do that, Greg. But So they left this place, and they head down through Galilee. So they're coming back toward Galilee. So just leave it up, if you would, for a little bit. 
Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. All right, let's just stop there for a minute. So they left that place, passed through Galilee. Now, I need to do a little bit more of back, background. I'm sorry, just one more piece of background that I think is important. And that's this. A few weeks ago, I also shared with you that where we are right now is a hinge in the Gospel of Mark. When you think about the entire Gospel, the first eight chapters, which we've been looking at over the last year or so, is Jesus doing signs and wonders, proving himself to be the Messiah. And it all culminated in a moment when Peter said, who do you think we are? And Peter said, what did he say? You are the Messiah, Son of living God. It's all, all the first church, eight chapters culminate with that statement. And now that that's known and out there, the last eight chapters, starting with the one we're in, nine, it's going to be less on signs and wonders and proving himself to be Messiah. And it's going to be a very long trek down to where it's going to be, down here to Jerusalem, where he's going to suffer and die. And he's, so there's a shift going on here in emphasis. And keep that in mind. I'm going to talk about that later again this morning. Very important. And he's teaching the disciples about, he's preparing them for this shift from all of this incredible ministry and growing popularity. Well, now things are going to be a little different from here on out. Now that you've said on Messiah and that's out there, now it's time to go be Messiah, which means suffering. And this is what he tells them, right? He tells them, verse 31, I'm going to be delivered in, I'm going to be killed, and in three days I'm going to rise. Now this is the second time he's told them that this suffering's going to happen. It hap and he also told them in chapter 8. Now talk to me for a minute, okay? Ready? A little quiz here. When Peter had said, you're the Messiah, the very first thing Jesus says, correct. And guess what? I'm going to go suffer and die. What was Peter's response to that? Anyone remember? Never going to happen to you, right? Because in Peter's mind, the Messiah is going to go build a great kingdom and wipe out these stupid Romans, and we're going to finally have it all together. We're going to be great. That's what it is. And he goes, no. How does Jesus respond to Peter's response? Get behind me, Satan. How many of you think Peter remembers that experience? Keep that in mind again this morning, okay? This background, part of the problem of going so slowly through a book is sometimes it's easy to forget the big picture. That's why I'm going back over the big picture, okay? That's still a very fresh memory. So no wonder verse 32 says that when, when he teaches them again, by the way, as I said last time, I'm going to be delivered in the hands of men, killed. After that, I'll rise they don't understand what he's saying, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Why do you think they're afraid to ask him about it? <laughs> exactly. I don't want to get thrown under the bus like Peter did, right? Okay, whatever, Jesus. We don't get it, but okay, fine, right? And so I just want you to have that in mind, and so they don't get it. But he teaches them again. Now, why would he reteach them the same lesson? Well, he actually teaches them a little more, and I won't, for the sake of time, we won't go back to chapter 8 and show you, but I'll just point out one thing he adds here that he did not say in chapter 8, and that is this. Verse 31, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He didn't say that the first time. If you go back to chapter 8, he just says the Son of Man is going to be killed, die, and rise. This time he adds, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. Why is that a big deal? 
The Greek word here is paradidomi. And paradidomi can just as easily be translated betrayed. And actually a number of your translations have betrayed. It's about 50-50 say deliver into hands. The other 50 say betrayed. Now just think about that for a minute. Is Jesus a good guy or a bad guy? He's a good guy. Doesn't everyone like Jesus? Not everybody. The people who are against him. But the idea of betrayal is what? Someone who likes you is going to throw you under the bus. That's a new wrinkle. They, he had not told them that. Can you imagine them? Someone's going to betray. Someone's going to. Who's going to do that? Now, there's one other interesting thing to this word that I cannot skip. And it's something I don't talk a whole lot about. It's, it's Greek not only has tenses. We talk about present tense, past tense, future tense. It also has something called voice. Okay, active, middle, and passive. Active means the subject is doing something to another. Middle is he's doing it onto himself. Passive means it's being done to him. This isn't this being delivered or betrayed is in the passive voice, which means Jesus is not going to deliver himself up. Someone's going to do it to him. Someone's going to betray him. Someone's going to deliver him. Now, when I say that, whose name comes to your mind immediately? Judas. But let me add one last piece to all this grammar. The theologians agree this is no ordinary passive. This is what's known in as a, the divine passive voice. Can anyone guess what the divine passive voice means? God's behind it. Who's delivering Jesus to be massacred and tortured and ripped apart? Judas, but God the Father. Wait a minute. <laughs> I thought God was a good God. Why would he do that to his son? And yet that's what scripture teaches. Take a look at the prophet Isaiah. He was already prophesying this if anyone was paying attention uh, in, in Israel. Isaiah 53, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Whoa. Can I trust that kind of God? And cause him to suffer. That was his will. Peter's very first sermon. Go ahead and bump ahead to that. Peter's very first sermon, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was, same word, paradidomi, handed over to you by Judas, God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Ouch. And then even the Apostle Paul, look at what he says in one of the great, great gospel verses. He, meaning God the Father, who did not spare his own son, didn't spare him, didn't save him, didn't help him. He gave him up, same word, paradidomy, for us all. The only reason I can be at this table this morning is not because I'm a good guy or a good woman. Because the Father gave up his son so that we could be at this table this morning. But get that around your mind. I, it's hard for me as a father. All my instincts are to do what with my children? Protect them. And don't we get frustrated when God seems to do things that make no sense and we go, what? 
And we're not alone in all of this confusion. The disciples too, right? Verse 32, they did not understand. I mean, Jesus is, I'm pretty sure, a pretty good teacher, right? I think he'd get good marks as a teacher, at least to be. He's an effective teacher, and yet they're not getting it. They're not getting it. Why? Because this, it even grates against us now when bad things happen to us, right? What's the number one question people ask about God? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? It just, it smacks against every bone in our body. Just let that tension, that tension is on. I'm going through all this because I want you to feel that that's the tension these disciples are feeling. This is not, this is not computing with what we understand. But I skipped over something, which is really my main point here in the first part of this passage this morning. Up at verse 30, just hold on to those thoughts about the Father. Is he good or not in a moment? Go back up to verse 30. I said he had left that place, path through Galilee, and then Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He didn't want anyone to know where he was. He's going through Galilee. Now, we've already seen in the first eight chapters, you tell me, what are some of the things, you don't have to be specific, but in general, what are some of the things Jesus has been doing in Galilee? Has he been playing golf in Galilee and going to, what's he been doing in Galilee in the first eight chapters? Healing, teaching, raising the dead, arguing with the teacher's teaching. Yeah, right. With all amazing things he's been doing throughout the first eight chapters. Think about all that Jesus can get done. I mean, one of Jesus' days is like infinitely more productive than one of my days, right? Think about all Jesus could get done. Yet he's going through Galilee incognito so he can teach his disciples. Teach his disciples. Who are his disciples? The guys who don't get it. The guys who just failed to heal somebody. These are not, you know, uh, first-round draft picks, all right? They, these are not <laughs> leading recruits. For the most part, the picture we're getting in Mark is they're, they're knuckleheads, right? And now he's, he's going to, has everyone been healed in Galilee? Have all the demons been exercised in Galilee? Yes or no? No. Have all the dead been raised? Has everyone heard the gospel? What's more important? Has everyone heard the gospel in Galilee? No. But he's spending his time incognito so he can teach these knuckleheads. That's weird. What is that all about? It is related to what I shared earlier. It's, it's, a, it's an example of the shift that's going on in the gospel. In the first eight chapters, what's important? Proving his messiahship, signs and wonders. But now that he's been proclaimed the Messiah, now what's important? Get on with the business of being Messiah. Go to Jerusalem to die. Now, there'll still be some signs and wonders, but it won't be the focus anymore. And the rest of the way, a few months we have to go in Jesus' time, a few months we have to go, what is going to be the point for Jesus? Not only to go to Jerusalem, but to teach these disciples who don't get it. Why does he have to teach them? His time's short. He's getting them ready because they're going to have to take over Jesus' ministry, aren't they? But to do that, he's got to bypass all these great opportunities all around him.
He's got to bypass all this need that's all around him. I like how one uh, commentator put it, Alan Cole. He said, this is an example of how Jesus could neglect one opportunity to take another without feeling spiritually guilty. He had a quiet, purposeful selectiveness so often lacking in the fevered rush of activism of his followers, which produces nervous breakdowns as part of its bitter fruit. I could have put my name on that slide, all right? That's me right there. I, I don't know about you, but I'm always feeling guilty. I don't share my faith enough. I don't pray enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not serving enough. You know, why don't I do as much as he does or she does? And that, that sense of guilt is constantly there. And for some of you, you're like me too. I tend to be over-responsible. I feel responsible for everybody and I want to father everyone. Some of you want to mother everyone around you. And, and there's that instinct, right, to take care, to take care. And when we have that going, it just leads to a nervous breakdown, right? Now, you want to talk about Jesus knows everything. I mean, we walk by someone on the street. We don't even know that they have cancer. Jesus does. Man, if I knew everything Jesus knew, oh, my goodness, I wouldn't even know where to start, Right? But that's not what we see Jesus. He does not feverishly running around like caught up in the tyranny of the urgent. He somehow knows the priority. And that, let's just go there. That's our first point this morning. I think it's really essential. Service that honors God is flexible to the present priority. Flexible to the present priority. Very, very important. Very important. And, and again, I, again, I tend to struggle here. I tend to react to the urgent, the tyranny of the urgent. Instead of the priority. And I know I'm not alone. I know many of us struggle with this. How do we know what the priority is? Well, again, look at the context. Where did we start this morning? Jesus, once it's, it's come out that he's Messiah, where does he go? Up a mountain. When Jesus goes up a mountain, you tell me, in the Gospels, when Jesus goes up a mountain, what does he go to do? He goes to pray all the time. And I believe, in my own thinking, I can't prove it from Scripture, my own opinion, is that now that the first phase is, is he's been proclaimed, he goes back up, Father, phase two. What's the priority? And there's a marked difference in Jesus before the Mount of Transfiguration and after. After he's not running around meeting needs like he was in the first date, now he's ignoring needs to focus on the priority. And the priority is teaching these 12. That seems like a really stupid plan, frankly. Right? God always does the opposite of what you would think would make sense. All of God's mission is going to rest on these 12 guys. They got to get it. And, G and they're going to get disillusioned. We're going to see that when they get to Jerusalem and he starts being tortured and killed. He's teaching them. And later on, the Holy Spirit's going to remind them of everything they were taught. This teaching time becomes the priority. Everything else, no matter how important it is, yes, I know they're dying. Yes, I know they're demon, uh, oppressed by a demon, but this is the priority. And we can't feel guilty when God tells us, focus here. But we need to know what the priority is, and there's no other way to do it but to be in prayer. And the first thing, am I in prayer? Or am I just walking into my day assuming I know what I should do today? 
day or just in automatic mode. Oh, I got to go to work. I got to shower. I got to eat. And we go into automatic mode instead of being like Leroy said earlier today, being in step with the spirit, walking, Lord, I'm your servant. What do you want me? Maybe you want me to not go to work today. I don't have time to tell a story along those lines, but boy, I'm thinking of one right off the bat. One, I just... In summary sentence, God redirected me one morning instead of going to Travelers. He led me to pick up this guy and ended up leading him to Christ. I got to late, work late. My boss was like, thanks for joining us an hour late. And then I explained to him what happened. He just shook his head and walked away. <laughs> but again, we have to be walking in the spirit and allow, and only through prayer. How is your prayer life? This is not to make you feel guilty. This is to get, call you into the exciting adventure of walking with the living God. And he'll tell you to do probably the opposite of what you had on your schedule to do that day. He may tell you, do what I told you to do. Go work. And that honors God too. But aren't we hearing from him? Jesus hears from the Father up on that mountain. And now he shifts. And he's multi. What he's doing is making disciples. And this is what he tells the church to do. Make disciples. It takes time investing in one person or two people instead of leading a bunch to Christ. When I was a brand new Christian, I was shown this chart. I'll never forget it. A friend of mine wrote it on a napkin at Burger King up at the University of New Hampshire. And it comes from a book by Keith Phillips on making a disciple. And it just talks about two different ways we could go about ministry. One way, as an evangelist, you know, imagine if you led one person to Christ every year. I mean, every day. Every day you led someone to Christ. That's one way to do ministry. Or another one is just to disciple one person for a year. What would that look like? Well, I know it's a little hard to see, so let me try to point it out. But after, in year one, the evangelists would lead, if they lead one person to Christ a day, 365 people to Christ. The disciple would have only discipled one other person, so it would be, it'd be the two of them after year one. That looks like a whole lot better way to go, right? Big, huge impact. And look at year three. By year three, the evangelist, you know, leading one person a day to Christ is over 1,000. The disciples only got eight people at that point going one, one person for one year. Seems like evangelist is the way to go. But look at this. By year 12, you get almost the exact same number. And then the multiplication factor starts adding here. Year 13, evangelist is 4,700. The discipler is now 8,200 people. These people are still doing one person for one year as opposed to leading someone to Christ every day. If you carry out the math, by year 33, ironically, as long as Jesus led, lived, you would, lead, you would disciple every single human being on the planet. So the, this is addition, this is multiplication. And we are called to make disciples. And you go, well, that's what pastors do. No. See, we've, we've professionalized this. It's not, never meant to be. Making a disciple just means teaching someone what you've been shown. That's all. And some of us have been shown a lot. Praise God. Some of us haven't been shown much, but you've still been shown something. If you know how to pray, there's someone who has no idea how to pray. I've talked to people who at this church say, I have no idea how to pray. Like, you tell me to pray, I don't even know where to start. If you know how to pray, you could disciple somebody. I know people who, when I say, turn to the Gospel of John, they have no idea where in the world to find that. If you know how to find the Gospel of John, guess what? You're a disciple maker. You can show someone how to, where, how to navigate around the Bible. 
You don't have to be this experienced person to be a disciple maker. All of us can influence someone for Christ by just showing them. And we're going to be talking more about that in the next several weeks. It's what God told us to do as a church. It's what we're to do. And the unique way God's made you, we can all make disciples. And this is what Jesus Christ is doing with these 12, putting all these other great ministry opportunities aside because that's how important multiplication is. And so with that, let's continue on. Verse 33. Well, eventually their journey came to an end. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, uh, what were you arguing about on the road? So while they were walking on the road, not only was Jesus teaching them, but they, behind him they were arguing with one another. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> Can you say, busted! <laughs> right? <laughs> And I love how Jesus does it, right? First of all, two good things to learn from here. Number one, he doesn't bring it up when they're out in public. What are you guys talking about? Can you believe these guys? He doesn't do that. He waits until they're in private. They got back to Capernaum. That's the home base where Peter's house is. That's where they would hang out. They're probably in Peter's house. When they're in private, he now points it out. And he doesn't do it like, stupid, what do you think? No. What were you arguing about? He, He lets them. Bring it out. What are you arguing about? And their silence condemns them, right? They know they shouldn't have been talking about who's the greatest among Jesus just told them, I'm going to go suffer and die. They're not even thinking about that piece. They don't want, maybe it's denial. Well, he also said, I'm going to rise. So may, and we don't know what that means because in our theology, resurrection is going to happen at the end with everyone, not just one person in the middle of history. That makes no sense to them in their Israeli theology. They don't get any of that. All they know is you're Messiah. And I don't know what you're teaching, but here's what I know. Messiah is going to destroy the, the whole story. And then there's going to be a great kingdom. And whoever's with you is going to have these awesome gold seats and crown. Who's going to have which way? Can you see them on the way talking about this? I can just see them on the way. Now, by the way, a rabbi always walked in front of his disciples. No disciple ever dared walk next to a rabbi or in front of a rabbi. So as they're going down, you know, through these mountains, down through Galilee to Capernaum, Jesus is in the front. So they're trailing like ducks behind him, right? And can you just see him just thinking to himself as he's listening to the, you know, who knows what they were saying, but, you know, hey, when the kingdom comes, who do you think is going to be at the right hand? I don't know. Well, I think it's going to be me. Peter goes, well, he gave me a title. He called me the rock. I mean, I got to be the guy, right? And then I could see James and John going, okay, get behind me, Satan boy. Yeah, you're going to be the guy, (laughs) right? And then they could say, well, actually, he brought us up on the mountain. We saw him transfigured too, and we didn't say anything stupid like you did about building shelters. So I think we're going to be at right hand. I mean, that's the kind of stupid talk going on behind them, right? So when they get to Peter's house or wherever they are in Capernaum, then he says, and what were you arguing about? And their silence again condemns them. That's my second point this morning. Simply is this, is service that honors God is unconcerned with self-promotion. Simple. And I've got the the picture of the button. I got the button here this morning. Uh, Those of you who remember, believe it or not, it was 17 years ago we did Purpose Driven Church as a church. It was this book by a pastor named Rick Warren, and it opened with, it's not about you, right? The very first line, first four words, not about you. And the whole book is about if you're going to find your purpose in life, the first place you got to start, it's not about you. 
But all I know, look at our culture. If you, I mean, I look at CNN, I look at different news things, and you know what I'm constantly seeing? It's all about asserting my rights. It's all about me becoming all I'm meant to be. Everything's about self-promotion. Our whole, our whole culture's about self-promotion. And yet the way to greatness is not promoting, it's actually going down. Service. Sacrificial, humble service. And so when we were going through that, Brett made these, these cool buttons with me crossed out. He was telling me, too, on Friday on an email that he wore, uh, he had a shirt with this on it. So picture this big, not about me, on his shirt. And he, he was vacationing up in Maine, and this guy came up to him and said, what do you got against Maine, right? <laughs> and he's like, and Brett's got no idea, right? So he's like, what are you talking about? I don't hate Maine. Yeah, you do. You hate Maine. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, I thought I was going to heaven right there, right? But then he goes, well, look at you got Maine crossed out. He's like, no, 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 no. And then he used the opportunity to share Christ with the guy. So there you go. You got to be ready. It may come at the, your, your life may come this close to ending, but at least you get to serve God. That's a good thing. It's not about me. Now, last week, I didn't preach at the first service. I shared a little bit at the second. And I talked about someone who's really been on my mind again this uh, last week, and it's this Sister Rosemary. How many of you happen to see this article in ESPN this week? Anybody? Wow, only one. Okay, three of us, four of us total. Good. You haven't heard her story. Let me just make it brief. But this is someone who understands it's not about me. Okay? So Sister Rosemary is part of a nunnery that's called a cloistered nunnery. She's a cloistered nun. I didn't know what that was. There are 45,000 nuns in America. Out of those 45,000, 160 are cloistered nuns. Just a, just a handful. A cloistered nun is someone who has no contact with the outside world whatsoever for their entire lives. Instead... They make a vow of poverty. They don't own absolutely not one thing do they own. They make a vow of silence, 23 hours of silence a day. They get one hour a day to talk to their fellow nuns. They spend those 23 hours working, sleeping, and praying. And all they do is pray for the salvation of humanity. Now listen, it's Catholic, there's some theology issue there, I'm not going to get into all that. I'm just focusing on devotion here, okay? They spend 23 hours a day praying for the salvation of humanity. That's what God's called them to do. Now, twice a year, they're able to talk to their family through a screen, only their family, twice a year, for an hour, because they only get that hour to not break their vow of silence. And that's it, twice a year. And then once every 25 years, they get an opportunity to renew their vow or leave for another 25 years. And on that 25th anniversary, they get an opportunity to touch their family. So Sister Rosemarie's 25th renewal was this past June. And this is the picture of her coming out of the nunnery and touching her mother, 78-year-old mother, for the first time in 25 years. Well, you, yeah, you jumped ahead on me. It's all right. We'll just leave it up now. I wanted to then say the reason I'm going through her story this morning is because she's not just Sister Rosemarie. In her case, at the 25th anniversary, they allowed not only her family to touch her, but her teammates. 
because Sister Rosemarie is also known as Shelly Pennefather, who was the, the top women's basketball player in America in the 1980s. In 1990, she was the top paid women's basketball, professional basketball player in the world. This is someone who literally had everything. She had a man that they were going to get married. By the way, he's become a priest because <laughs> he wanted no one but her. And when she was standing in front of her, and as they interviewed the teammates and the family, they're all like, we don't get this. We just don't get this. She was one of the most extroverted, loving, caring, constantly serving people, a wonderful person. Why would she be cloistered away? That doesn't make any sense. And they've struggled with this. It seems almost cruel. But she, when she's renewed for another 25 years... <laughs> She just said, I just wish all of you could experience, even for a few minutes, the unspeakable joy of being constantly focused and in the presence of my Savior. There's nothing like it. My life is more full than any other life I could possibly imagine leading. That's someone who understands that it's not about her. She could have just kept being a famous basketball player and led a nice life. But she literally gave up her entire life. It's not about me. It's not about me. And these disciples are struggling to understand that as they argue about who's the greatest. And we do the same when we say, why aren't they recognizing what I did at Winterbury or why I should have a title, I should have a better title, or we get caught up in why did he get promoted and not me? Why did she do this? And I we're missing it. We're missing it. Just missing it completely. So Jesus sits them down, verse 35, and he's he sits down, and that's important because Jesus could just say, Come on, you guys. Probably what I would have done. Instead, he sits down. That's the posture of a teacher. He takes the teaching position, calm. It's a picture of calmness. He's patient with them and with us, thank God. And then he calls the 12 and he says, it's not about me. Anyone who wants to be first must be last of all and the servant of all. Simple. Not a big, huge, amazing teaching. It's just simple. But there's a lot in there, isn't there? You got to be the servant of all. You need to be last. If in the, in the kingdom of God, everything is upside down. Everything we value in our life, and you go on CNN and you listen to modern music and look at the lyrics and it's all about me, 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 me. And I wanna, it's all about him, 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 him. And less of me, more of him. Simple lesson. It's not about me. And then to bring this home, he calls up a little child to be among them. Verse 36, he took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, oof, whoa, does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Whoa, who are you ministering to when you're ministering to the least of these? God himself. We have to remember that. He calls a little child to himself. Unfortunately, I don't know if our kids are here. I'd love to have a little kid come up here. 
so I could hug him. I don't know if anyone's brave enough to come up here. Is there a brave enough child who'll come up here? I don't force them. They got to come on their own volition. I don't want anyone to feel awkward up here. But I'd love a little child to come up. Is there a child who's willing to come up and let me give him a hug? Are you willing to come up, you guys? Thank you. Thank you, honeys. Come on up. Oh, can you come up the stairs right here with me? Not too far. Just a little bit. Can I give you guys a hug? Oh, sweetness. Oh. oh, Jesus takes these little ones in his arms and he says, this is what the kingdom of God is all about right here. Serving the little ones. Serving the ones that we, our eyes don't even see because we're busy on our own stuff. They're too small for us to notice. Rushing around, running right in them as we get out of the church in the morning or making our way on the bus to work in the car. We don't even see the little one on the side of the road. The little ones, it's all about them. He holds them. Thank you, guys. I'll let you go back now. I appreciate you staying. You can go back now. Oh, how yummy is that? Love it. Thank you, girls. So I want you to picture Jesus. He, you know, and, and most scholars think he's in Peter's house. So this, it's probably one of Peter's children. Very likely. It's his home. It's probably one of his kids. So just imagine that. Actually, the, the, the word here in the Greek is interesting, too. Where, oh, I, my page got mixed Okay, where it says, um, taking the child in his arms. That's all one word in the Greek, which literally means to take a child in the crook of your arm, like a shepherd. It literally means hug. He hugs this child. Jesus hugs. It's not like he just places them on a... He hugs this child. He hugs this child. And he says it's all about inviting ones like this. Why is that important? There's two things I want to bring out from this. Number one, Jesus says, when you welcome one like this, you're not just welcoming that child, right? When you do it in my name, remember, it's not just any good deed. It's in the name of Jesus. Do it for him in his strength, led by him. When you do it in the spirit, led by Jesus, you're not just hugging that child. You're embracing Jesus, and not only Jesus, but what does he say? The Father. And I think that brings us full circle. Because what did I ask you to remember from earlier in the sermon? What kind of a father would send his child to be ripped, literally ripped apart, hanging naked in front of everybody, unjustly punished? Who would do such a cruel thing? He did it so that he could hold us in his arms. He did it so that we could... Hold him in our arms. He did it that we might be brothers and sisters of Jesus and sons and daughters of the Father. That's why he did it. It's the heart of God. He does it. And this is what service and love is. It's sacrificial. It's giving up the best you have for the least, for someone who, Jesus says in other teaching, who can't pay you back. It's easy to give to those who can pay you back. But to give to someone who can't give it, then it's, then it's done unto him and him alone. 
And seeing Jesus and seeing the Father and the image of God in these people, whether it's a baby or an immigrant or, or a street bum or a CEO, the image of God is in all those people. And when we love them in the name of Jesus, it is, it is a moment of intimacy with God himself. It's powerful. But there's one other thing I want to bring forth on this. What was the symbolism of a little child? Why did he pick a little child? And let me give you a cultural note. Let me just show you what cultural note. When we think of children in our culture, we, we have laws to protect kids, right? But 100 years ago, kids were in factories with no labor laws, right? Most of human history has not valued children the way we value children in our day. So when we read this passage, we put 21st century valuing of children in it. No, 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 no. You have to read this according to the first century. Here's the idea of children in Jesus' day. Children had no power, no status, and no rights whatsoever. They were not considered full persons. They were regarded as property. You can see that when you read the Old Testament, the way children are talked about. They're just property, taken as plunder, along with the gold and the silver. They were dependent. They were vulnerable. They're unlearned. They, they bring no... Profit. When you're in a society where you can't survive unless you can harvest that crop, you need people who can help you. You're not about, oh, our cute little kid. Look, no, another worker so we can eat and survive. That's the attitude. So they're vulnerable. They're not helpful. If anything, they just take from us. They're subject to the authority of their father. They have no authority in their own. The rabbis would classify children with the deaf, the dumb, the weak-minded, and the slaves. Nowhere else in the world do we find children in this time appealed to as an example to be imitated. To become a child basically means to recognize your own insignificance. It is not about you and me. This is the symbol of, in reality, in and of myself, I've got nothing. Child has nothing. And when I'm caught up in my own life and my own pursuit of my own things, I've got a false understanding of my own significance. I have significance for one reason, and that's because I have been bought by a God who loved me through the death of his son and made me his son and daughter. I've been placed, his image is upon me, therefore I have dignity and worth. But it's his image that gives me that, not on my own. And so he takes this child and saying, you've got to be willing to be like this child, having no significance in and of yourself, and you need to be willing to serve ones like this instead of looking to serve the rich and the famous and get all excited about them. No, no, serve even the least of these. And that's my third point here this morning. Service that honors God is flexible to priority, unconcerned with self-promotion, and is privileged to serve anyone and everyone. Am I privileged. And I use that word on purpose. I try to tell myself, it's a privilege to serve. Now, as I wrote that sentence on Thursday afternoon around 3 p.m., just as I was writing that sentence, no joke, I mean, I'm, this is literally true. I'm typing that sentence. Bloop, 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 bloop. My little text goes off. And I look, and I look real quick. And I'm thinking to myself, I got to get out of here by 4 o'clock, and I'm I'm stressed to get the sermon done and completed, slides done, loaded, all that by 4 o'clock. And I look, hey, Andre, can you blah, 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 blah. And I, and I went, oh, man, oh, fine. I went, yeah, sure, I'll take care of it. And then I go back to the sentence. I went, oh, my goodness. 
Wow. How quickly we forget these lessons, right? As long as we're in this, there's not a person except Jesus that can walk this earth and not struggle with self-focus at some point. And it's instinctive in us. It's just natural. And that's why we need the refiner's fire. Because as, God can, as we continue to give ourselves up to God, what he does is over time, over more and more as time goes by, eventually if I walk with him, there's less of me and my instinct starts naturally being Jesus' reaction instead of my reaction. He does that. I can't do that. He does that. But as long as we're still on this planet, we're still going to have that mix. Wheat and the tares, still going to be there. And in that moment, I can react, going back to what Leroy said earlier. Oh, what an idiot I am. I shouldn't be pastor of this show. What kind of... No, no, no. No, because then Satan's going, yep, yeah, got him right where I want him. Focused on himself. No. Okay, Lord, forgive me. I, you know, I, I'd be happy to get that for you. Send me a, another follow-up text. <laughs> happy to do that. My privilege. Right? You forget what's behind. You, you ask forgiveness. Let the Holy Spirit wash you and move forward. That's all it is. Don't linger on the garbage. Confess it and press forward. Paul said, forget what's behind. Press forward to what's ahead. Let him do what he's going to do. So let me just close with, um, I had an opportunity that I promised I would share. Caleb Lagan, who goes to this church, was talking about there's an opportunity to serve. And I know this is the slide he sent me. It's almost impossible to read. You might want to take a picture of it if you're interested. I'm just going to read to you what he sent to me. This is a, serve, a humble service opportunity I want to share with you. American Home Life International provides recruitment, visa processing, homestay, and general support for international students from around the world wishing to study in the U.S., England, and Canada. They are a faith-based organization from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, been doing this for over 40 years. Their mission is to place international students in Christian homes to facilitate exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Families who wish to participate must, meet, uh, must submit to an official background check, provide references for your character, provide a private bedroom, Wi-Fi access, rides to the school, meals, and then they're compensated about $1,000 a month toward the expenses. And then the point he's saying here, the students that the master school is reaching out to are generally are from East Asia, and pretty much none of them have any exposure to Jesus Christ whatsoever. So while they're here for a year, it's an amazing opportunity. And uh, he wanted me to throw it out there. Again, no big fanfare. We're not going to put it up here that you took in a student or anything. It's just between you and God. But there's an opportunity to humbly serve behind the scenes. And I'll just leave you with this. Again, the button. It's not about me. Say it with me. It's not about me. Father, I pray for each of us. I don't know what service opportunity that you're going to present to each one. But I'm confident of this. If you are a servant and we're your disciples, then service is at the very center of why we're on this planet. And Lord, the service we're called to give is not the one we want a lot of times. It's the what you want. And it may be to someone that we have no interest in serving whatsoever. But help us to see you when we see that person. Whether it's the waitress today at the restaurant, whether it's the kid next door who threw something against my house, or whether it's the, the people in my own home who treat me terribly. May we see Jesus in them. May we be privileged to serve them. Lord, may we understand that you served us that we might serve others.
It's not about us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, the LeBlancs would love to pray with you. It's not about you. Go and serve him as he leads.